The New Level Cap Podcast is a show about fun, friends, game design, and all things otherwise. Your hosts are Marco DeSantos and Brad Talton of Level 99 Games. I'm Chris Solis, your producer, and without further ado, please enjoy the show. Yes, my wondrous fans, welcome to the Black Parade. When I was a young boy, my father told me to listen to the new Level Cap podcast. As usual, it's me, your host, Marco DeSantos, also known as Mechanic Critic and not the writer of Umbrella Academy. And with me is my amazing co-host, God King of Level 99 Games himself. This uh, this intro is probably the weirdest one yet. What is What is the Black Parade? You, okay, so maybe you're a bit too old, because in my generation, when I was like a teen, like My Chemical Romance was really popular, and like they have this one song called The Black Parade that starts off like, When I was a young boy, my father, and stuff like that. Like uh, so- Okay, yeah, I think uh, it was, I was more in that uh, like Linkin Park era, so I might have missed that one. I um, see, I see. But don't worry about it, it's just like... It's like the emo anthem. People call it. The okay. Emo yeah, anthem. that was that was yeah. Millennium or not that Lincoln Park was the was the emo anthem for for that for for my era, which was right around the Millennium two thousands. Yeah. So there you go, so. My Chemical Romance, and it relates to okay. Umbrella Academy because Gerard Way, the front man for My Chemical Romance, wrote Umbrella Academy. So there oh, you go. interesting. I read the comics, and uh, I really enjoyed the Umbrella Academy comic. I didn't get into the Netflix show. I guess maybe it's a little too slow to start for me. I see. Because uh, uh, you know everything already, Brad. Th- yeah, I also already know the plot, and, and it's, a, it's very much a show that's about the twist, right? Yeah. Because uh, so it's, he- kind of it's kind of a mystery. Let's not spoil anything for the fans. Sure. It's, <laughs> it's good. It, it's worth reading the comics. I can't speak to the show, but it's worth reading the comics. Yeah. Don't say you like the anime if you haven't read the manga first. Sure, that works. That, that works. works. That works. Well, welcome everybody. It's it's good to be back for another Level of Cap podcast. I am Brad Talton with me, Marco DeSantos, and uh, we are here today to talk about replayability in games. Woohoo! Unlike this TV a... shows, which have no replayability, if you really think except, about it. Except except uh, Bandersnatch. <laughs> I guess because Bandersnatch is a choose your own adventure book, so I guess that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. But uh, but anyway, this is a, a topic that's very near and dear to our hearts at Level Ninety Nine Games. We spend a lot of time thinking about replayability and how we're going to keep our games fresh and replayable for multiple runs. Yep. So so yeah. Well, Brad. um. Brett. Yeah. Can I ask you, what is replayability? At least to you. I have my own definition, but maybe you have a different one. Okay, so to me, um, I feel like a game, the game really exists in the space between learning the game and mastering the game. And so the journey that we take to get from learning to mastery is the is is the game experience. Now, as we are, as the game setups change, as we kind of understand the systems below the the gameplay and learn sort of the underlying rules of this universe that's where we really experience fully the the gameplay it's it's when you are learning something new when you play a game to me that's what replayability is if i play a game and i don't learn anything new then i'm ready to put it away it's not re- like the replayability is lost mm. and so if a game setup generates a situation where I have to learn something new or try something new or experiment, then to me, that's the replayability. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, so in games like BattleCon or maybe chess, right? There's a difference between being knowing how to play chess 
and being actually good at chess or being good at Battlecon yeah. and learning Battlecon to begin with. So you yeah, feel... like when I play a game of Battlecon, I'm probably playing a match that I either that I personally have either never played before or have only played once or twice. And so to really um so so I have to learn that match as I'm playing. I have to discover the weaknesses and strengths of each fighter's kit and and play and play through that. So there are a lot of different setups to the game and each of those setups requires its own mastery. So we would say that's kind of on the extreme end of replayability because it gives you a lot of ways to to pursue mastery of the game over multiple games. Ooh, I think I like that definition. I think my definition kind of fits yours a little bit, but is less technical. It's more on the feel side, you know? Mm-hmm. Essentially, replayability is like, basically, how many times can I play this game while being entertained and being engaged? Because um, I think the ultimate point here is that even if you have technically limitless replayability by changing setups or changing the character you're playing, if you have 20 characters, but they all basically play the same or they all are the same except for one stat difference in one number or whatever then it's not really replayable anymore you you cease to engage right yeah like playing the playing all the different characters in mario kart doesn't really make for a truly unique experience each time but playing all the characters in smash brothers is a pretty unique experience except for a couple of the echo fighters right yeah, but and even then, sometimes the Echo Fighters play differently from the other fighter. They have like, a different adventure mode, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or a different classic mode. Exactly, exactly. So in that sense, right, it's it's a, it's kind of a mix of both, right? On one end, you can have that difference between learning and mastery, but the big deal, in my opinion, is that even if there is that gap, if the player starts feeling like they can no longer master the game, even if they technically can still do it, then I feel like you've still lost the replayability in that sense. Like if well, I think that's, just... that's the point, right? Like if if I play a game and I don't need to learn anything else, or I or it's not worth it to learn anything else, either of those two cases, then then the game is over, right? Yeah. So it's it's how long, how how much distance can we put between uh, full mastery and the and learning the game, and also keep that space interesting. For the player. Yeah, yeah, I think that's important, right? It's, it's not just about the gap of mastery and learning. It's also about keeping the player engaged through the entire process. Because the moment yeah. you falter in one of those two things, the game's done, right? Yeah. And But for me, I truly believe that as long as I am learning something new, I'm learning new tricks for the game, then that, that will remain interesting. Mm. So it's really like if I reach this point where it becomes a pure skill wall or a Mostly, if it becomes a pure skill wall to achieve mastery, is when I drop out of a game. I really want to be discovering new strategies. For me, I think some some people, well, in sports, it is pure skill wall, right? Like you just get good, and then uh, by practice. So, so that can be engaging for a certain type of person. And I think, for example, like your fighting games, like Street Fighter, are engaging on that level where there is a skill wall, and you do practice until you're excellent, and yeah. you overcome that. For me, I don't really like execution or or skill those kind of skill walls. I'm really more interested in the strategic skill walls. And so when I build my games, that's more what I play towards. I generally feel the same way about that. Um, I do like some sort of execution wall, but it's a bit different in that my execution wall love is how can I get by with the least amount of execution possible? You know what I mean? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody wants to, wants to, nobody likes execution walls, but there is something satisfying in overcoming them. Yeah. And, or cheating them, right? Yeah. Or finding a way around. Yeah. Yeah. So Brad, let's talk about, so we're talking about replayability. What are some techniques that our listeners as game designers, or at least as players can look out for when they, when a game wants to have more replayability? Probably the easiest way to make replayability in your game is to have different setups. You know, if you have variable factions, like we're talking about the characters in Smash Brothers, or tracks in a racing game, or if we have, um, especially if we can remix our our current content, like each time you start a roguelike, you're in a different. The dungeon is a bit different. The uh, maybe you have a different item, or even um, if you have different characters that you can play as, like in Battlecon or Exceed. Those provide a lot of of different content. So having different ways to set up the game, and then we play out the same game but with a different setup, that'll create different values for the resources that we have, for the different actions we can take, and it'll force us probably to use some of the random techniques or tools that we're given in a different way. Argent is a great example for this. There's so much variable setup in Argent. Sometimes gold is the most valuable resource. Sometimes mana is the most valuable resource. Mm -hmm. Sometimes influence points can be especially scarce. And those games provide interesting challenges to players. If you play a game of Argent and the only way to get IP is to get into the infirmary, then that's a pretty unique game of Argent, right? Because everybody, as soon as you, as soon as somebody throws a fireball, they're, they're giving away a large amount of uh, control. And it can be pretty drastic too, right? The amount of content that the variable setup changes can be as simple as like you have a different skill at the start to as drastic mm-hmm. as a game like maybe Argent or Millennium Blades, right? Millennium Blades, I think, is the is the biggest example wherein in one game, this one card could be the best card in the entire set. And then in another game, it's complete trash and nobody wants it, right? Mm-hmm. It's It's pretty interesting. Yeah, and by that same token... We, the other thing that we can do, obviously, is we can diverge during the gameplay. So um, as a game plays, the events are going to play out differently every time. And if a game has a high degree of variability, then we will discover new things as we play. So you take a game like Dominion, there's a lot of variable setups, but the game doesn't change. Once the game starts, you can pretty accurately predict what the top strategies are going to be. But on the other hand, like Millennium Blades, we can build a setup, but we have really no idea what our strategy is going to be until we start drawing cards, and then we see what we actually have to work with in this particular setup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the game can diverge quite a bit during play, even if you're using the same setup in a game like Millennium Blades with high variability. Yeah, you don't take away control from a player, but you do inject a lot of variety into the potential for the gameplay. So you force players to adapt. Yeah, I think that's that's mm-hmm. one deal that you have to do that changes variab- like variability in play or like differences during play is that even if the starting setup is the same, certain things have to change within play that make you change your strategy. If you can take the same course of actions 100% of the time and replicate your results 100% of the time, then most likely you do not have differences during play. And this could lower your replayability by a lot. Because even like like for example, a game like um like a game like Mario Kart, right? Like if you play the same track over and over again, it might seem like it'll be the same, but the differences in items that you get from the boxes changes how that game plays out, right? 
So mm. certain things can happen, but it doesn't mean that you change the player's control scheme and make it so that going forward is actually left. Like, it's not like that, right? You just have uh. to do things that make the players change the way they play or change the strategies they take. You know, F-Zero uh, for the GameCube actually did have a random track generator. And so you could play a random track circuit. Every game, every course of the circuit, would you would, you would have no idea what track is coming up. And that was um, a pretty incredible innovation in racing at that at that time when that game was out. Wow. Um, but anyway, yeah. So with, at the point when you when you know the right move to make, when I'm like, I know this is the this is the absolute right move. That's sort of when gameplay ends and you know computation takes over when the, you've solved the game. So at some at some point in the game, you'll think you'll say, I think this is the right move. I believe this is the right move. I have a strong feeling that this is the correct move, but you don't know 100% for sure that your move is absolutely right. And when you do know 100% for sure a move is actually right, then it's just, you're just executing a series, you know, the algorithm. You're not really playing the game. Yeah, and that's that's not fun. At least it, it stops being as engaging as when you're trying to figure out what you should do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is yeah. usually the fun in most games. And I think here's here's the last point. It's not always just about what you do before the game. It's not always about what you do during the game. Sometimes it's what happens when you're done with the game. So uh, replayability, this might seem like a weird concept for replayability, but post-game content can act as a sort of way to revive your interest in a game. Uh, essentially yeah. making that game a little bit more replayable, not infinitely so, though. Yeah. Uh, so well, this the is... classic, yeah, the classic example would be like your new game plus, right? Where I'm encouraged to try the game again, maybe on a higher difficulty level, or with the potential to get a different ending or to take different choice paths through the game. And so you get a very, um, I would say, like low low cost replayability just by throwing a new game plus in. But a lot yeah. of games do this even better by adding, say, an expansion or a DLC. Uh, or things like that. Yeah, I think the the most iconic example for me was Pokemon Gold and Pokemon Silver, because um, like when I finished the Elite Four and Pokemon Gold and Silver, I was like, all right, I'm done with the game. And then after the post credit scene, uh, they were like, oh, by the way, here's Kanto. Here's just the entire region of Kanto. Goes through the entire first Pokemon game, and I'm like, what? I lost my mind because um. Yeah, that was really, really cool. I'm, I'm really sad they didn't do that for any of the other generations. But, like, it was really cool that you got to, like, go through all of the gym leaders from the first Pokemon game. And then you, you fought Red at the end of it. Oh, that was just so good. That was so cool. Yeah, they, Pokemon has always been really good about having a lot of post-game content. You almost feel like the whole game is a tutorial leading up to the, the open world portion at the end. Yeah, that's true. Where where it's like you go online, you breed, you do like competitive battling, or you do beauty contests and uh, and all this stuff, right? It's yeah, and and all those each of those cities with its own gym leader also has a one of those mini games that's taught to you through the city you visit. You're not wrong. Yeah, because one of them is like the beauty gym, and one of them is like you know, there's like this mini game yeah. you have to do. There's and it's like, like a- you have to win this beauty competition to fight the gym leader, or you have to you know do the the like IV training before you can fight this this guy. You know, they teach you this stuff, and they force you to kind of learn all these subsystems. So really, I mean, the whole adventure is a tutorial in a certain sense, and I think a lot of the really really uh classic replayable games are like that they teach you something up to the very end and then once they're done teaching you a thing it's like and now the world is yours 
huh I've never really considered it that way but if you're but you're not wrong right like that's yeah. maybe that's why people feel like Pokemon games are a bit handholdy throughout the entire thing it's because they're meant to be <laughs> they are yeah they're they are I had a really good experience uh playing Outlier Fierce the one of the Outlier series games that I'm going through and you you go on this whole adventure across the world and it takes like a year of in-game time so you're literally like adventuring for a whole year to get uh to go on this this long ex uh this long odyssey and then you um you get to the town you pass the the alchemy licensing exam and then um the game starts but i'm already like 30 hours in at this point <laughs> but it's like because like i finished the whole game i built all these great bombs i beat the uh the final boss and everything and then you know they're they're like oh and and now you can go out and explore and there's all these monsters that are way harder than anything that i thought was like the final boss that i thought was the final boss there's tons of plot lines that are open world type plot lines where you have to go around and explore places that you didn't explore on your first trip through the world Mm -hmm. um they finally give you all the convenient alchemy features like the um like uh there's a duplication service and oh, okay. I got through the whole game, and I was like, where's the duplication service? This is something that's pretty standard in these games. And they don't give it to you until you you know, pass the alchemy exam. But that's like 30 hours in, so you have to do a lot of synthesis and really master the system before they give you the convenient feature that lets you get out of doing a lot of synthesis. Huh. That's really interesting. So how, you feel how many more hours do you have to play of Atlier Fierce? I don't know. I don't know. Like I'm, I'm just going through the plots as they come up. But it's... You know the 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 final villain from the previous game just showed up, so I imagine that that's where the end game is going. If I follow that thread, I see. Okay, so time to beat the big final boss. And Brad, that's time yeah. to beat this first segment. Uh, we're gonna go to the short break, and we're gonna talk about more about the pitfalls and the advantages of adding replayability to your game, if there are even pitfalls or advantages. So, Brad, take us to the break. All right, cool. Let's go to the break. Visit Level 99 Games at PAX East. We'll be featuring Street Fighter Exceed at the show. Come to Tabletop Booth 11 to learn how to play and leave with a free Ryu vs. Ken demo deck. See you there. Cool. So, Marco, one of the things that's infinitely replayable is the format of this show. Because now that we're back from the break, we are going to uh, replay our usual... Um, our usual, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, MO, as it were, and talk about the advantages and pitfalls of replayability. Ooh, Brad, really? But don't forget that during play, there's a difference because our topics are different every time. The variable setup is that we have different topics. Uh, so uh, it's fine. And that Marco will come same. up with a brand new intro, brand new genre of intro to reskin this game with. You know what? One of these days, I'm going to make like those CD noir intros. It'll be so good. I'll we really, like we need level voice. cap podcast in space. Is what we need. All right, in space. Replayability, the final frontier. Brad, yeah. What are some advantages of replayability? Obviously, the the core one is that players will play your game longer, and yeah. this allows you to maximize content by repeating content. And I, I, it sounds kind of, I guess, dirty to say repeating content. But when you have something like a, let's say, a card or a monster or a, um, you know, a dungeon that required a lot of time to build, players are not often going to get the full experience going through this once, right? Like you fight one zombie and then no more zombies show up. Well, that's not a very good 
zombie game. And we don't want to design every zombie in the game individually. So we're going to have players refight these enemies a couple of times. And so because we're going to have to reuse the content a couple of times, uh, we can make the content more than players are going to see on one run or in one battle or in one use of the weapon or whatever so that they get to really discover play. And this is where we get into kind of the, I guess, self-driven, discovery-driven type of gameplay where you, you, you think you know, you feel like you know everything, but you play again and you discover something new and that makes you want to play again after this. Yes, that's right. like the that's like the experience that I love the most when playing some of your games, like um, Battlecon and Exceed. It's like when you figure out those weird strategies that nobody else thought of, and you're like, "Hey, but this is a really good strategy." Like, uh, like in Battlecon, when you dash or dodge into someone's attack instead of dodging over them, and people are like, "What the hell are you doing?" And I'm like, "This is the correct play. You just don't see it yet, right?" <laughs> Like that's that's the moment where it's like, oh, that's so good. That's that's the moment I crave. <laughs> yeah. With that, when people are pl- are enjoying content, achieving mastery, and you are discovering as you play, you really do feel like you're getting more out of the game. You're really you're squeezing this game. You're getting more value out of it. A lot more value. A yeah. game with good replayability could could live for hundreds of hours, and. Whereas a game that you can only clearly play once might only have um, just a few hours of gameplay or even be like almost a movie in some Al- senses. Almost. Yeah, you're not wrong, right? Some games do kind of play out that way, which is why I kind of hate games like um, Walking Sims. There's merits to it. It's a different kind of play. Like I played Amnesia and I loved Amnesia and I played the second one. I loved the second one too. And they are, but they're an experience, right? And I can always go back to that experience. I don't need to play it again. I'm not worried that I missed anything or that there are secrets that are going to show up later. Yeah. You know, like oh. I played Gone Home and it's like, uh, you know, I don't need to play Gone Home again. There's only one story there. Gone Home but Part 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good experience. It's a good experience. But if we are pursuing mastery... One playthrough should not be enough. I'm never, I like you can't get, you can't master Minecraft, right? Yeah, and <laughs> that, true. and that, and people pour, you know, un, an unlimited number of hours into a game like that. Yeah. So if you're truly trying to create something that is, you know, that 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 encourages players to seek mastery, replayability is a must. Yeah, that's definitely true, and I think like that's something we take for granted sometimes that. We think replayability is just adding more stuff in, but really it's more about making smart use of the stuff that's already in there, you know? Like mm-hmm. like characters in Battlecon or characters in Exceed, like to make them more replayable isn't to just like give them more cards, it's to do our best with the 30 cards that they currently have and figuring out how those 30 cards work with each other, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's like, you know, smart use of the resources you have and replayability can really like be a force multiplier, right? Or a work multiplier. Yeah, you're, you're, you're leveraging the amount of content you create to, to get a greater output of player engagement than the work that you put in, right? Yeah. I put in a little bit more work and I managed to create a much larger experience. And I think that that's the, the goal of replayability in a lot of cases is to make the game feel endless or to make the game feel like it's much larger or to make players feel like they can get much more out of it by playing that next game. Like, I discovered something in this game, let me play one more time and I'll discover something even more interesting in the next game. And it's especially good if the game's multiplayable, like a roguelike or or like a, a, a competitive game. Yeah, and for our games, 
specifically, a lot of people tend to point towards the fact that they feel that level 99 games games are, you know, they're they're always worth way more bang for your buck. You know what I mean? It's like by by making a game technically infinitely replayable, people can buy a ten dollar experience that will last them for literally forever, right? Let's just look at Minecraft, right? Like you spend what twenty bucks, thirty bucks on Minecraft, and then you get to play a game forever, and it gives you an endless amount of entertainment. And to many people, that price point matters a lot, right? Because they they deal with time to dollar ratios. I personally don't subscribe to this, right? Like. I feel like if an experience is worth my time, uh, it, even if it's only one hour of time, I'd rather go through an experience that's 100% awesome for that one hour than an experience that's like 30% awesome for 60 hours, like Kingdom Hearts 3. It's true. You don't want to dilute it. You don't want to – and I think that is, a, that is a good segue into the pitfalls of replayability because it's very easy to dilute your content in the pursuit of replayability, but you really don't want to do that. You want to leverage your content. So mm. I'm taking what I've what I've already known and I'm building more into it, so that you can discover more. So you have a, a concrete experience, a good a good concrete experience, and then I'm putting in paths or opportunities or alternatives that will also provide a different experience that's that's similar yet different. I can branch that path and create yeah. something unique. So I'm not cutting my one path into three or four different paths. I'm really building three or four different paths off of my one. Can I give an example? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So I think I think we're going to mention both forbidden games in this one example. So well, you're already uh, one down. So forgive me, forgive me, Brad, for I have sinned. So so Dark Souls does this really well, right? They have the typical jobber skeleton enemies that are littered throughout the entire game, but Dark Souls does so much with just the three skeleton enemy types, right? There's three of them. There's the spear guy, the sword guy, and the bow guy, right? And the way they've constructed it is so amazing because you can have the same spear guy in multiple areas in Dark Souls, but because of the environment that they put the spear guy in, the challenge becomes severely different because fighting the spear guy on an open flat area is way different than fighting spear guy on a narrow bridge where you can fall on either side, right? But that's still the same spear guy. Well, but not necessarily. Like that spear guy has actually about seven moves, and each instance of him knows about three or four of those moves. That's so they like you'll you kind of learn the spear movements in such a game, but each instance of the spear knight is going to be different. And then you get to the the big castle at the end, and you have the heavily armored spear knight, and he knows all seven of the moves, and he has excellent response time with raising his shield, and the fight is suddenly much harder, and you have to actually put what you learned into practice. Yeah, but they're all the same spear guy. But right? they're like, all the, the, the same spear guy, yeah. Yeah, so like that's that's what makes it so good. On the other end, the other Forbidden game doesn't do this so well. How does Kingdom Hearts increased replayability? It throws the same shadow at you 20 times, right? Like With, with more hit points. Which yeah, is that's the worst. That's it. It's the worst, right? But that's it, because that's what's make what that's what makes it like that's the difference between replayability and just padding the game, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's meaningful differences that allow you to make different strategic decisions in one, and the other one means you have to match X more, right? Yeah. And you know, different different games for different kinds of gamers. But it is it is a you know it's a thing. Like when you do put in a lot of that heavy replayability, you can really um, 
you know, it can be pretty daunting to new players. And this is a big thing about Dark Souls too, is that the 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 wall that you have to climb to to start to recognize, oh, this is, these skeleton guys actually do all have the same pattern. Um, that can be tough. It's yeah. it can be galvanizing, but it can also be um, you know a real deflection to players. Mm, yeah, this is something that's a problem in games like Millennium Blades too. As much as I love it, right? Like new players tend to get so overwhelmed because there's just there's just this giant heap of information that they have to know, or else they lose, so to speak. Right? A common feedback I've heard is like, "Well, I don't know what the cards are," and I'm like, "Yeah, but that's part of the game. Discovering the cards is part of the game." But there's just a, there's just a specific subset of people who are like, "No, I must know all the cards before I play." And I'm not saying that that's a wrong way to try to experience games. I'm just saying that this type of game is definitely not for those kinds of people, right? Yeah, and 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 it seems like a common thread that we do keep coming back to here is that the game has to be right for you to to make sense. So the kind of player you are is going to determine a lot about what level of replayability is right for you. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, again, episode one. See, this is why we did episode one, because it, it just ties to every single topic we talk about. At the end of the day, does the game fulfill the purpose the player needs it to fulfill, right? Because not every yeah. player is out there looking for mastery. Some people just want a quickie, get in there, play a game for five minutes, get out, right? And Yeah, a, a standalone casual experience is fine. And even a standalone solid experience. Like, some people really do like a game like Hansa Teutonica, which is pretty much going to be the same each time or El Grande, which is pretty much the same each time. Some people like a little bit more variability in a game like Agricola or um, things that have some amount of setup, uh, Twilight Imperium, but the the core engine is pretty much the same throughout most of the games. Twilight Imperium is probably a bad example. There's a lot of variety in those factions. Yeah, there but are. The, so, so going from that scale, from like the Hansa Teutonica scale up to the Twilight Imperium scale, you know, there are players who appreciate each different level here. Yeah, and so I think this is one thing that we have to point out when we talk about all of these game design things, is that not doing the game design thing we're talking about isn't necessarily bad. No tool is bad. The, the topics we talk about are tools, and none of them are inherently bad. They're just things that you can use to cater a game experience to a specific audience that you want to cater to. And so yeah. if some people don't like replayability and that's your audience, they don't like replayability, then feel free to use these tools that we're giving you in order to reduce replayability or at least reduce the amount of variability during gameplay, right? Yeah, I think everybody wants replayability, but they might want it in different forms. Some people exactly. want a solid starting point where we're all on level ground and we can develop positions. Some people really want to start on different ground and adapt. Some people really want to have the game continue on in an asymmetric way, um, like a legacy-style game. So there's definitely a valid way to do this. I don't see really the uh, games that have zero replayability lasting very long. And this would be a game like Time Stories, which is truly like a story game, and you or the Unlock Escape Room games. You know, you go through the events, and then you've solved the puzzle, and you're done. Those kind of games really will there's a good market for them but they do exist only in one playthrough yeah so yeah. so you have to consider the those experiential games as a third category with zero replayability yeah and um, but like at the end of the day right like those games aren't necessarily bad They're just oh all those games audience. are good 
Yeah, there are good games in every single one of those categories. And so yeah. you have to decide which level is right for your game. And don't try to mix it up. Because if you do try to make a game like Detective or Time Stories or the Unlock Escape Room games, if you try to make that unplayable, it will either be overly complex or a bit ham-fisted or it just won't be enough to make players want to play it again. The fact that the combination on the safe changes, that's not going to affect the storyline because this is really a game about unraveling the storyline. Like, imagine trying to do a old-school adventure game roguelike. That'd be weird. Mm-hmm. Like, like that's a genre that's totally zero replayability with a genre that's meant to be infinitely replayable. I mean, it, it might work, but it's really hard to make it work. So I mean, just that's, know that's your kind audience. of monster prom, right? That's kind of monster no not really because that's a visual novel visual novels are choose your own adventure books right i guess i guess but it's that's what kind of gives them the replayability i'm talking about like i'm talking about like monkey island adventure games you know what i mean oh yeah like that well if if you were going to try and fuse those genres monster prom wouldn't be a bad place to start Oh, definitely wouldn't be a bad place to start. Okay, so I think my last point I want to say here, and it's 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 a very important point. Replayability comes with it a few pitfalls. Uh, we've already talked with some of them, but I feel like the biggest one is this. If you add a lot of replayability to your game, that also means a lot of variable setups, a lot of randomness during play, or a lot of post-game content that not everyone will get access to. That means one thing, Brad. The more Mm -hmm. replayable you make your game, it is more likely, I'm not saying it's a directional causal thing, but the more you make your game replayable, the more likely it means that the game is not catered or not handcrafted because you have variable setups, you have randomness factors. This means that you won't get to cater the experience that the player goes through. And this could be bad in some ways. At some point, you're putting your your, your experience at the mercy of the players and letting the or or even at the you know the random setups and so it is possible to get that setup of argent where i can't gain ip except from the infirmary and that's a really uh it's a unique experience but it's not a first game experience players Hmm. won't you know won't really get the the true play of the game by playing a situation like that so it's worthwhile to really you know to, to take a balanced approach um or even to do your more procedurally generated or random replayable content or whatever at the end of the game in the post-game type of section. Make sure that you give players the full experience right up front or the tutorial experience right up front and then let them explore more variable setups or more variable adventures. Yeah, so that's something that Pokemon does really well, right? And I think Mm -hmm. we're also trying to do with a game like Seventh Cross where the, the game itself has some branching story paths, so on and so forth, but there is an end to the game of Seventh Cross, and the post-game content is with the uh, the morphing castle or whatever it's called. The challenge, yeah, challenge mode, and with uh, fighting some of the more complex monsters. And we're we're looking at actually doing, you know, some I guess I would say build your own type of content that's still heavily in development. So I don't want to say anything particular about the post-game content except that it exists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's the point. We said it on podcast before that you know we want to do something like. Uh, a, a randomly generated castle or something, right? That was so. yeah. That was a very in a much earlier uh, version of the game that we had that kind of capability because the game's more paragraph driven now. We've had to to change that technique a little bit, so yeah. it's probably going to be more about the um, the monster fights being 
being more flexible All right, than so the storyline portions. I see. So it's like, um, what do you call this? It's it's like fighting the emerald weapon in Final Fantasy or whatever, right? Yeah, uh, but but the castles we have worked to make the castles a lot more replayable. So each castle you can actually you can speed run through. You can take a more complex path. There are multiple different endings. There are paths you can take that will cause some characters to turn on you. There are paths you can take that could cause different characters to, to turn on you. Um, the main villain of a story might be different depending on which path you take. So there's there's reason to actually play the campaigns over again. And that's where we've tried to put the replayability in that mm-hmm. game, at least as far as the storyline goes. So the branching paths. Yeah, into the branching paths. And it's really it's really more of an open world type of game than a branching path game. Oh, I'm so excited for this game. But Brad, you know what else I'm excited for? What's that? Not having to endlessly replay this podcast because we need to end this podcast. Because as much as it's replayable, it's only replayable for 40-minute chunks. All right. Well, let's call this one. And Marco, it's been great. Uh, I'm your host, Brad Talton. With me, Marco DeSantos, also known as the Mechanic Critic. And together, we are the Level Cap Podcast. Oh, Henshin! Or something. I don't know. Are we a Sentai team? <laughs> I, I uh, guess. I guess so. Yes. We both right. turn into a podcast. Wait. It's kind of like Wonder. It's like Wonder Twins. I see. So Wonder Twin powers activate form they- of a podcast. Right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay, pretty much. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the New Level Cap Podcast. Please, 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 if you liked anything about this episode, share it with a friend. If you hated it, share it with an enemy. And if you have anything you want to talk about, game design or otherwise, tell us in the comment section down below, and we'll answer you as soon as we can. So, without much else to say, thank you, World of Indians. Thank you, and, and good night. night. The New Level Cap Podcast is produced by Level 99 Games. Join us next Wednesday for more design talk and shenanigans. Thank you for listening.